You're listening to Cross Section, the podcast of the Summit View Church of Christ. Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord Welcome back to Cross Section. I'm Kevin Jensen, and this is the In Between Section 6D Angelic Men in Ezekiel and Daniel. Men in quotation marks, because we're looking at uh, angelic beings, they appear to be angelic beings, called men in visions that Ezekiel sees uh, in chapters 8 through 11 of his book, and uh, a man who appears in the fire that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into in Daniel chapter 3, indications that God was present with them uh, as they were being punished by the king of Babylon, but God rescued them, saved them from that punishment. Mysterious beings, mysterious uh entities here that we'll talk about in today's class. This class is the in-between. We are looking at angels, demons, the devil, heavenly powers, dark powers, and human beings between death and resurrection. So all these beings and spirits that exist between human beings and God, that in-between realm. This is our Wednesday morning Senior Adults and Friends Bible Study, now meeting in person and online. You'll hear voices uh, from people online as well as uh, right there in the classroom in person. I apologize for the audio quality of the comments uh, shared by uh, the class members. Uh, they do not have their own microphone, and, and we're working on uh, whether we can find a way to fix that so you can hear them better. Uh, but I, as I'm leading the class, try to repeat their comments from time to time so that you can uh, catch what they're saying. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoy this class. Let's jump in. We are near the end of Section 6, and you may have seen the uh, Section 7 worksheets at the, at the back. Uh, so grab one of those if you didn't already, or uh, for those of you at home, those are on the church's website also. And you can download them, or you can pick one up uh, here off the members' table on Sunday. So Section 6 is taking us through the time when Judah uh, was the last part of Israel standing uh, before it fell to the Babylonians. In 586 B.C., section 7 picks up there and takes us through the rest of the Old Testament period. And once we get through section 7, we'll be jumping into the New Testament where glimpses of the, uh, the spiritual realm between us and God are frequent and thick. I mean, there's just a lot of interesting stuff in there. And as we get closer, even, even starting you know, last week, this week, as we're finishing up section 6, as we get closer to the time of the New Testament, uh, the depth of insight that we get into this spiritual realm uh, deepens and becomes more like what we see in the New Testament, more like what we're familiar with there, uh, and pretty fascinating and pretty mysterious as well. So we saw some of that last week in, as we were talking about the cherubim, uh, these amazing angelic creatures who attend God at his throne and also at his portable throne, as we saw last week. Today we look at something that, uh, I can't remember who it was that asked about it. Vicki, it might have been you, I can't remember. The uh, man dressed in linen. Did you bring that up last time? I can't remember. Somebody brought that up last time. Uh, the man dressed in linen in those uh, scenes where we see the, the cherubim. Uh, we're going to look at him here in just a minute. Uh, so we're going to begin with various men in Ezekiel's visions uh, from Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10. And so let's, uh, let's start with Ezekiel 8. The first four verses. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, 
The hand of the Sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire. And from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. So obviously not a normal man. Very strange and and wondrous in his appearance. Verse 3. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head, which tells us one thing about Ezekiel. He's not bald. He has enough hair that this guy can grab him by by the hair. As opposed to uh, another famous prophet who was apparently bald. Do you know who that was? Do you remember? Yes, Elisha. Elisha, yes. How do you remember that? Because they called him old bald man, and he got very angry. That's it. That's it, yeah. Yeah, Elisha was uh, moving around, moving through a city in Israel, and a group of uh, young punks uh, told him, hey, get out of here, baldy, get out of here, baldy. And Elisha got irritated with him and called on God to send bears, and God sent two bears that mauled all these 40 or 42, something like that. Uh, youths. Um, so, be careful how you treat a prophet of God, right? Anyway, uh, Ezekiel has hair. Elisha did not. So, God takes both types as prophets. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head. The Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, He took me to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel, as in the vision I had seen in the plain. That glory of the God of Israel, that's the the cherubim and God's portable throne and all that that Ezekiel saw beginning back in chapter 1. So he saw it again. Uh, But I wanted to focus on this guy in verse 2. A figure like that of a man. Um, He appears from his waist down like fire. And from his waist up, he looks like glowing metal. Bright and shining, and amazing, uh, powerful to look at. Have you noticed how often when we see angelic beings in Scripture, they look glorious, they they look amazing, Um, sometimes glowing like this guy, uh, sometimes um, shining and bright like lightning, we see that in the New Testament, uh, when we see angels there sometimes. Sometimes they're just dressed in white. And I think uh, this, uh, this appearance... And then sometimes they just look like regular people, right? Like the, uh, the angels who came and visited with Abraham. You remember them? He offered them food and hospitality. And they were just... Uh, they, were, they were angels, but he, he thought they were just men traveling through at first. And then he figured out who they were as they began to tell him what was going to happen to him in the, in the future. <clears throat> uh, I think sometimes God sends angels inconspicuously so that uh, they can interact with us without us realizing who they are, at least at the beginning. And sometimes he wants us to know from the start who they are. And so they look amazing. Kind of like Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration when he was changed and glorified. His clothes became as white as as snow and he shone brilliantly there on the mountain. Sometimes uh, angels appear in such a way that they communicate by their appearance that they have been with God. And you can't miss it. And that's what we get here. This guy uh, uh, is just, just amazing. And then he does the strangest thing. He just scoops up uh, uh, Ezekiel by his hair. <laughs> carries him off. Uh, and the Spirit lifted. Uh, that's the Holy Spirit. Lifted uh, uh, Ezekiel uh, between earth and heaven. And took him in visions of God to Jerusalem. Where he sees 
bad things going on. He sees a lot of idolatry happening at the temple of God. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know. could be right that uh, Darlene's asking um, did, did his his body remain in, in Babylon and, and his uh, spirit was taken away in, in the vision and it, that could be um, I don't know if Ezekiel knew for sure uh, as a parallel to that 2nd Corinthians 12 talks about uh, a vision that Paul had uh, in which he saw things that a man is not allowed to tell I mean, he says he was taken up to paradise he was taken up to the third heaven, which is where God is, right? Um, and that's what he calls paradise. And he says he doesn't know whether it was in the body or out of the body. He was there, but he's not sure if his body came with him. It might have, but it might not have. So uh, he just doesn't know. And that may be the same with Ezekiel. He may not know. So that's a really good question. I mean, how do, these, how do visions work? We, we just don't know. Even, even people who have experienced visions, like Paul, you know, didn't know exactly how they how they worked. So. Any other thoughts on this this guy here, Mary Jo? That could be. That could be exactly right. Because he saw so many different things. Yeah. And he didn't Right. Right. And when it's all done, he's back where he started from. Um, in the middle of the, the vision, I think it's here in chapter 8, he uh, is told by the angel, I think, or maybe by the Lord, to dig through a wall. And so he digs through the wall. But is that all happening in his head, in the vision? Or is his, is his physical body there digging through a wall? We don't know. Right. Yep. And and that seems to be really happening. So he's in some way he's actually there, uh, watching. Yeah. Other. Yes. Yes. Right. Like being here on Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. Georgia, are you here in person? Or are you? I mean, in body or just in uh, uh, in, in mind? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a little bit of a parallel there. Yeah. That's interesting. Any other thoughts on this guy? Okay, let's go take a look at some more like him. Uh, chapter 9, in verse 1, we'll read uh, all the way through chapter 10, verse 7. This is just a little bit later. Then I heard him call out in a loud voice, Bring near those who are appointed to execute judgment on the city, each with a weapon in his hand. And I saw six men coming from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. With them was a man clothed in linen, there's that guy, who had a writing kit at his side. They came in and stood beside the bronze altar. So let's see if we can figure out 
what's going on with these six men. And then a seventh one, the man clothed uh, in linen. These seem to be maybe more than just figments of the vision. Uh, Sometimes in visions like this, in Ezekiel or in Revelation, uh, you get characters that don't really seem to be real persons, but represent some kind of power in the world or something that God wants done. Um, like the, the riders on the horses in Revelation 4, or like the, um, the, the bizarre-looking creatures, the beasts that Daniel sees in Daniel 7. Uh, but here you see these, these men, in quotation marks, coming uh, into the vision, and God has things for them to do. They seem to represent angelic beings, or maybe they really are angelic beings, uh, pictured in a way that Ezekiel can understand, make sense of. So let's see what they do. Uh, Verse 3, Now the glory of the God of Israel went up from above the cherubim, we talked about the cherubim last week, where it had been, and moved to the threshold of the temple. Then the man called, then the Lord called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing kit at his side, and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in it. So there are people in Jerusalem in a very sinful time in Jerusalem's history. There are people there who love God and who hate the idolatry and the violence and the wickedness going on in Jerusalem. So God wants the man clothed in linen to go through and mark each one of them. Now this is a spiritual mark. It's something God can see. Not something that human beings would be able to see normally. Except maybe in a vision like this. Verse 5. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city and kill without showing pity or compassion. So that's the other six men. The ones with weapon at their side. Anybody that the guy in linen doesn't mark, do not belong to God. And so, take them away. Kill, kill them. Verse 6, slaughter the old men, the young men and women, the mothers and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the old men who were in front of the temple. Then he said to them, defile the temple and fill the courts with the slain. Go. So the temple's not even a safe place. And the reason is because of the idolatry that's been going on there. It's already defiled. It's already unclean. And so God says, Make things right here. Get rid of these people who are worshiping idols. Get rid of these people who are doing evil at God's sanctuary. Uh, And so verse 8, While they were killing and I was left alone, I fell face down, crying out, Alas, sovereign Lord, are you going to destroy the entire remnant of Israel in this outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? And so uh, Ezekiel sees there's going to be a lot of destruction here when this really happens, because this is um, kind of... Uh, foretelling what's going to happen to Jerusalem when the Babylonians come and destroy Jerusalem. Uh, so these, uh, these angelic beings who are carrying this out in the vision uh, are in some way in the background of what's actually going to happen in just a few years uh, after, this, uh, after this vision. Verse 9, here's God's explanation for why this has to happen. He answered me, The sin of the people of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, the land is full of bloodshed, so they're killing each other. They're, they're doing violence against each other. And the city is full of injustice, so there's no fairness in the courts. Uh, the poor are mistreated and no, nobody comes to help them. The guilty are, are let free and the innocent are convicted. Things like that, when we're talking about injustice, that's the sort of thing that's happening. They say, the Lord has forsaken the land. The Lord does not see. 
So I will not look on them with pity or spare them, but I will bring down on their own heads what they have done. Then the man in linen with the writing kit at his side brought back word saying, I have done as you commanded. I looked, this is chapter 10 now, I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli above the vault that was over the heads of the cherubim. The Lord said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the wheels beneath the cherubim. Remember those wheels from last week? Fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And as I watched, he went in. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord rose from above the cherubim and moved to the threshold of the temple. The cloud filled the temple, and the court was full of the radiance of the glory of the Lord. The sound of the wings of the cherubim could be heard as far away as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. When the Lord commanded the man in linen, Take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. The man went in and stood beside a wheel. Then one of the cherubim reached out his hand to the fire that was among them. He took some of it and put it into the hands of the man in linen who took it and went out. So you have this man in linen interacting with the cherubim. Uh, You have him able to hold fire. Obviously, he's not a human being, not a normal person. He can hold fire. The cherubim can too. And the fire represents the destruction that God is going to bring on the city. So the man in linen is to take this, these coals, burning coals, scatter them across the city, representing the uh, destruction, including the burning down of Jerusalem that's uh, going to happen in, uh, uh, in a few years. So God's judgment is coming on Jerusalem, and that's what this vision is all about. So this, this man in linen, he's kind of uh, God's lead angel for checking on the people and seeing who really cares about God, who is still dedicated to God. Uh, He's sort of God's leader, leading angelic being for uh, launching the destruction on the city as he scatters these burning coals. But then there are these six others that also go through and, and in the vision are slaughtering the people who do not belong to God, who do evil in this city. So interesting behind-the-scenes look. You know, what this looks like from Earth, from human perspective, is in uh, about five, um, 589, 588, somewhere in there, uh, the Babylonian army comes to Jerusalem and surrounds the city and besieges it for about two and a half years or so, starves the city out to the point that there's just no food left in the city. The city becomes very weak, and the Babylonians break through the city walls finally, and kill the people inside. They take the survivors and drag them away into exile. Only a very, very few of the poorest people are left in the city. Uh, and Jerusalem is destroyed. It becomes a Babylonian province, basically, a Babylonian territory. Uh, that's how it looks like from a human history kind of perspective. But from God's perspective, we sort of get the behind-the-scenes look. God is watching to see uh, where are the people who trust in him, where are the people who don't, and he's going to treat them differently. Uh, he is working through not just King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, to bring about the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's also working through angelic powers to bring about the destruction of Jerusalem. And we've seen before when angels uh, helped bring God's judgment on a person or on a group or an enemy army or something like that. Okay, that's the man in linen. What do you think? 
and Karen and Georgia, if you, uh, if you want to speak up, feel free to unmute yourself and, and uh, jump in. So. We can hear you just fine. We've got the projector set up here. With, it has a good sound system on it. So I think we'll it's really hear. interesting that he's described like that. A man and a lemon. Yeah. You know, it could have been anything. But. Yeah. That, is, yeah, that is interesting. Why is he described as a man in linen? What do, you, what do you think is the significance of the linen? Was it, was it rich? Mm-hmm. Or, or, or is it something poor people wore? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Wealthy. Wealthy. Yeah, it's a sign of wealth, oh, okay. uh, power. Possibly royalty or association with royalty. Mm-hmm. Is there any chance that it would be associated with the linens that wrapped Christ when he was in the, in the tomb? Oh, I hadn't thought about that. Uh, any association with Christ being wrapped in linen in the tomb? Uh, the one association that comes to mind, you know, off the top of my head, is um, Joseph was a wealthy man. Joseph, who provided the tomb for Jesus and who saw to it that he was wrapped. Uh, and given an honorable burial. Uh, and so the, uh, uh, just the indication of wealth and influence, prestige there, uh, perhaps, that, that might be a connection. Yeah, the, the, uh, his being clothed in linen might indicate he's someone of importance, someone of rank, uh, which is an interesting thought among angels. Do angels have different ranks from each other? We don't know, but uh, this may just indicate that God is the king in this vision, and he is a close uh, official of the king, so to speak. And so God gives him authority to go and do these things God wants done. And he does them. Uh, so just like uh, the king would have high officials who would be dressed in linen or in fine clothes. And would go and do, uh, carry out his commands. As well. Let me glance back through these verses and see if there's anything else I wanted to bring out. Yes. Mm-hmm. He carries a writing kit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, he does look like an ancient scribe here. He, he carries a writing kit, like you said. Um, that's mentioned in verse, uh, verse 3 here. Uh, the man clothed in linen who had the writing kit at his side. And his job is to go and mark people and so he has the equipment to, to do that. It's interesting that you would have a writing kit. I mean now we just have paper and pencils and they're all over uh, in our society but at that time that's a pretty important skill to have and, and one that not everyone has to be able to write, to read, to put marks on, on things. Richard? So is God telling him who to mark or is he Ooh, that's a good question. Is God telling him who to mark, or is he making that decision? Uh, so, if he's making that decision, he's definitely a man of power. Yes. A being of power. Yeah. Yeah, he's a person of influence and power if he is the one who's making the decision about who to, who to mark and who to not mark. So, verse 4, God gives the criteria uh, for who to mark. Uh, put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done in Jerusalem. But God doesn't give their names. <laughs> mark Fred, Mark George, Mark Mary. You know, he, he uh, just says, mark this kind of person. And so it's up to this man in linen to go through and figure out who those are. So he does seem to be a person of some importance, some, some uh, influence. He gets to make that decision. Who qualifies and who doesn't? Yeah. Would he have to have some power? 
power to be able to read their minds or read their hearts because they might not necessarily, while they're lamenting, they might just be doing their everyday work. Uh-huh. And when you look at them, you would observe that they're not being evil, but they might still have evil thoughts or evil doing later. But if he could know their, their actions, even though he's not seeing all of them, but yeah. What an interesting thought. Uh, if he came and looked at us right now, he would, you know, you could say, well, all of us are really good people. But if there's someone here, which I don't believe there is, that was later planning on doing something not so nice. Yeah. Right. Would he know? Yeah. So that, that brings up a really fascinating question. Um, can angels read people's minds and hearts uh, the way God can? We know God can hear our thoughts. We can pray without verbalizing our prayer, and God hears it through our spirit. Can angels do that? Abraham's wife, Sarah, when she laughed and said, oh, so I really have pleasure in my old age, right. he, knew, he, he knew it. That's true. The angel knew it, yeah. Knew when Sarah laughed, yeah. Richard? Well, let me throw it way out the We know today that our names are in our book. We know that everything that we do is written down. So this was this man, he had an argument with me. Maybe. <laughs> I said, way out there in left field. Yeah, but what a fun one, though. Okay, so. Who writes down our actions and such in, in the books that are opened at the judgment? Uh, and especially the book of life. Who, who fills out, you know, names and, and such in the book of life? Do angels do that? Does God do it himself? We don't know, but, but maybe angels do, or maybe they're helpful in the process. Can angels read people's minds and thoughts? I mean, we are spiritual and physical beings. Uh, we can't you know, um, read each other's spirits, so to speak, read the inner thoughts of another person, but could angels maybe? Boy, it makes you stop and think, I have to be careful what I think, right? We know, we know that whoever this being was, he had God's complete trust. Mm -hmm. There there was no chance that this this being was going to make a mistake. No chance at all. Yeah. So whatever information he needed, he had it. Yeah. Yeah. He had God's complete confidence. He's not going to mess it up. He's going to do it right. Boy, may, may we be found as, as faithful and trustworthy. Somebody had a hand. Darlene. You know, in Catholicism, again, they mark their foreheads. Okay. Different places in the Bible. People are I think you're right. I think you're right. God doesn't need a mark to know who belongs to him and who doesn't. But it might be that those angels do. So we have seven angels here. One, his job is to go through and mark. 
the people who are to be spared, protected, uh, and the other six are to go through and bring God's judgment on the people and kill the unfaithful and such. Um, they may need the mark to know who to kill and who to save. Um, now, for us, there's, there's only one mark that we need, and that is the mark that God can see that uh, we belong to Him. And I think that mark begins with faith and baptism, you know, and then continues with obedience to God. Um, that's what marks us, is our, our baptism and our faithfulness. You said something before, and I just thought about it again. Do you think that this is God's way of showing the people of that time God really is going to take care of you if you are serving God in your life, oh. right? Because He is going so far as to take the special man and mark you. Mm. Yes, wouldn't this be an encouraging message for uh, those in Ezekiel's audience, all of whom, none of whom are in Jerusalem where the vision takes place? They've already been exiled. But just to know that God knows exactly who belongs to him, and he's going to take care of them and protect them. He's going to help them. That's an encouraging thought. Yes. With all the destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem, uh, God's going to protect his people. And I think, um, I think we feel uh, in a way that's analogous to this situation when we think about the final judgment. That we realize the final judgment is going to be a time of, of terrible uh, punishment, judgment from God. Uh, it's going to be a horrible time for a lot of people, but we also uh, recognize that uh, it's going to be a wonderful time for God's people. Not that we want to see anyone destroyed, but that's when our redemption is completed. And we are, are raised from the dead, or we are, if we're still living when Jesus comes, and may the Lord grant that to us, uh, we will be transformed so that we have uh, eternal um, bodies, eternal life. And that's going to be a wonderful thing. Uh, so we, we think about the judgment, and the judgment is, is scary. But at the same time, we recognize if we are walking with God, if we're faithful to Him, that's going to be a wonderful day. We're going to see Jesus face to face. And we have been marked in some way by Christ, by the blood of Christ, cleansed by Him. Uh, and, and marked as belonging to God, belonging to His children, or belonging to Him as His children. Just like uh, Romans 8 says, um, no, I believe it's the beginning of chapter 7. No, no, it's 8. It's 8. Uh, it says the Holy Spirit um, speaks, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit testifies that we are God's children. And so we are marked by the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives as belonging to God and being His children. And that's a wonderful thing. And at the judgment, God's children have nothing to be afraid of, but everything to look forward to. Uh, and that's a, that's a really awesome thought. But is the Holy Spirit clothed in linen? Is the Holy Spirit clothed in linen? I don't know. The only times we've seen him, he was either fire or he had feathers. You know, he was a dove. So. that was the message. You thought that's a good question. I, I don't think so because the Holy Spirit does appear in Ezekiel and he's called the Spirit. Um, kind of the Spirit of the Lord, I think, is, is how it's to be taken there. Uh, so I'm guessing the man clothed in linen is somebody different, but I'm sure they work together, at least. And I wouldn't be 100% uh, certain that we should uh, not see the Holy Spirit you know, working through the man of linen. I, I'm not 100% sure they're different. They're distinct, but... I'm guessing that it's an angelic being. So, which, which brings up another question. What's the difference between, say, the Holy Spirit of God and angels? 
they are at different levels. Right? The Trinity of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, are at a higher level than even the highest of the angels. Even the archangel, even the cherubim, the seraphim, they are at, at different uh, levels. Um, and we'll see that more as we get into the New Testament uh, later on. The difference between uh, God and the, the angels. And between Jesus and angels also. Uh, that'll be an interesting thing for us to look at too. Any, any other thoughts? on these guys here. Yeah, Mark. Okay, I have one more thought. This Good. is kind of way out there, but I wonder if we, good or bad, we, our actions, are put into the book, whichever book, oh. just because of what we do. Not necessarily because someone writes it, uh-huh. but when we're baptized, our name's there. When we oh. do good, our, it's there. When we do bad, it's there. Uh-huh. Rather than, I mean... I don't know exactly how to express that, but that's, I wonder if that's the way. I mean, look how far we are in technology. Yes. God is way, way, way past that. <laughs> yes. He doesn't even need any of that. So, yeah. it's pos- to me, it's possible that my evil thoughts or my bad intentions are there just because I have them. Yeah. And then if I pray and ask for forgiveness, then hopefully they're gone. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that makes sense to me. That it's not that an angel sits there and writes it down necessarily. It's just, it's recorded because it happened. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Which, which means we need to be more careful. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Uh, and that we should fully appreciate the forgiveness that, that God gives us through the blood of Jesus. Yeah, yeah, and not take that for granted. Yeah. Yeah, Mary Jo? Ooh, that's a good question. Revelation says, Okay. Yeah. That's a really good thought. Because yeah. a baby is written in mm-hmm. and the baby dies, it doesn't ever have a chance. So um, of course it would be there. Mm-hmm. So a really good thought. Yeah. We'd all start out on the even everybody's name would be there at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's an encouraging thought um, because, uh, like you said, Monica, that would be assuring to us that, that little children who die are in uh, God's hands and, and that they, their names are in the book of life, uh, that they, they started there and have not been removed from it, which also you know, is kind of tragic to think about it that way, too, because look how many people, they, they started with their names in the book of life and, and then they were taken out because of their evil actions because of their sin. Um, and yet God, through Jesus, offers to bring us back into uh, life into, and put our names back in the book of life. I don't know. It's speculation, of course, Mary Jo, but um, that sounds like it fits pretty well with other passages of Scripture that seem to indicate that uh, children are innocent before God, at least for a time, uh, up to a certain age or developmental level. Yeah. Don't they? We see, just like in this chapter, God destroyed the children of those people. Yeah. yeah. And that, that saddens me yes. very, very much. I, I'm not judging God, but it does make me think that the children are still innocent yes. when they're born. Yes.
Uh, the evil done by adults will always have an impact on the children. Not in the New Testament. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Babies are being killed because of what the parents did? Um, we, we, don't have, we don't have that happening in the New Testament. Uh, partly because the New Testament just isn't, isn't dealing with the destruction of uh, cities and nations very much. But that happens a lot in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament covers, you know, uh, at least a thousand years. The New Testament only covers about maybe a hundred at the most. So the Old Testament is just a much bigger time span dealing with the nation of Israel where the focus of the New Testament is, is more on uh, the people, the community of people who follow Jesus. But we do have that in the New Testament too because Jesus says that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he says, uh, woe to those um, who are pregnant mothers or who are nursing little ones. When he's carrying his cross, uh, or maybe Simon's carrying his cross at that point, uh, on his way to Calvary, to Golgotha, uh, Jesus uh, says to the women who are mourning for him on the road, uh, he says to them, uh, blessed are the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed, uh, because of the destruction that's going to come on Jerusalem later. And so that tells us, uh, yeah, the children will suffer then too. When God punishes a nation or a city, um, that punishment hits everybody. Uh, not, the children are not uh, automatically rescued from that. Which, you know, we see this today too, when, when parents um, uh, behave badly, you know, um, use drugs, become violent, abusive, uh, act irresponsibly. The children suffer, right? And God doesn't always rescue the children at that moment. Now, I believe God's going to make things right at the judgment. And uh, those uh, children who die, you know, too young to be held accountable for their actions, they're going to be with God, I'm sure. Yeah, but that's the key right there. Okay. When, when he says, write out the children also. Yeah. Those children who are pure and innocent, uh, it may be a blessing for them. They don't have to live through this life that their disobedient parents live through. Yeah. They will be with God. Mm -hmm. And I think of that when I think of the flood, you know, that everybody was destroyed in the flood. That doesn't mean that everybody that was destroyed in the flood is headed for damnation. Right. Those who, those children who are pure and innocent, uh, they're with God. And that's, well, I, I, I think abortion is one of those evil things there is. Every baby that has ever been aborted is with God. And I think, I think we should take that as comfort. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's reassuring to us. It's very reassuring to us. There's a line in... Uh, First Kings, uh, my kids and I read it in our, um, our, our Bible readings at home. We read through the Bible each year, the, the younger two kids and I. And we're in first, uh, we just got into Second Kings. In First Kings, I have to look back at which, um, which king it is. One of the kings, I think, of Israel, um, God uh, foretold to the prophet that um, his family would all be wiped out. The, their, the king's son, one of the king's sons, was very sick. And so 
the king sent his wife to uh, go ask the prophet, will, will this child live? And the prophet said, no. And the reason the child is going to die is because he's the only one that God has found any good in in your family. And so God's going to take him and the rest are going to be slaughtered uh, when God appoints someone else to take over the throne of Israel. That person will wipe out the king's family. But this child will already have, have gone. And I think the implication is this child goes to be with the Lord uh, when, he, when he dies. He's the only one that God found some good in. Um, which is something terrible to have to say about a family. But uh, that, that only one little child was, was uh, worth uh, uh, God's, you know, worthy of God's pleasure. Interesting things that we've, we've uh, talked about here from this uh, little vision of um, the man clothed in linen and the six men with him. Uh, before we close up, I'd like us to do one more text from Daniel chapter 3. It's a little bit long, but we're just going to focus on one little piece of it uh, after, we, uh, after we read the story. It's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but there's also a fourth guy uh, who shows up as well. And I'd like to talk to him quickly, talk about him quickly. Uh, and uh, this way we'll finish up section 6, be ready to get into, into section 7 next time. So the fourth man, Daniel chapter 3. We're not sure exactly when this story takes place. It's, it may be a few years before Jerusalem falls, and so, it's, uh, so I've put it in this section. And we're going to get into a lot more of Daniel starting next week. Uh, we'll look at Daniel, Zechariah, uh, some Psalms. And uh, there's some fascinating angelic appearances in Daniel. Daniel's thick with angelic beings. But here we just get a glimpse of one. So, Daniel 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are to do, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So this is sort of a test of loyalty is what it sounds like. The Babylonians had conquered a number of peoples. They're trying to unite them all under one king. And uh, in order to do that, they're setting up this statue of the king that everyone is to bow down before as before a god, as before an idol. Uh, and that way the king will know all these people are loyal to me and I can, uh, I can rule them without uh, fearing rebellion and such. So verse 7, Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We meet those guys in chapter 1. They're friends of Daniel. Who paid no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now this is a big deal because they've been put in positions of authority in uh, the Babylonian um, uh, political structure. And they are now refusing to obey the king. So this is a problem. So verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or, or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And so Nebuchadnezzar is being very gracious here. He's giving them a second chance. Right? They, can, uh, they can make this right. They can obey the king and then they won't die. So it sounds like a good deal. But from a Jewish perspective, Nebuchadnezzar has just pitted himself against God to say, God will, your God will not be able to rescue you. If you're refusing to bow down to me because it would offend your God, that's a bad choice because your God won't be able to rescue you from the fire. Verse 16, the, these Jewish men have a little different perspective. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. So they've just contradicted the king. He, our, our God can actually save us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace, which would probably make you think that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are dead before they really land inside the furnace if the soldiers were killed just by getting too close. Verse 24, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was the hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. And remember, they'd been you know, thrown in their robes and turbans and everything. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise, to, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and re- rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What a fun story. One of the favorites of uh, kids in Sunday school, uh, everywhere, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what I want to look at is that fourth guy in the fire. Who was that fourth guy in the fire? What do you think? Who do you think that was? Was that? Jesus, okay. 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 What would make you? What would make you think Jesus? What would make you think this is Jesus in the fire with the three men? Oh, okay. Yeah, he is. He is the savior, right? Yeah, he's the fourth guy in the fire saves them. Yeah, Richard. Okay. And this translation that you read is probably more correct. Nebuchadnezzar is the one that says it. Yeah. He would not be acquainted with the Son of God at all. Yes. Uh, he acknowledges the power of whoever this being is. Yeah. I, I, I think I was raised thinking it was Jesus. I know that it was a messenger from God. Okay. So it's a messenger of God, for sure, at least that much. Maybe Jesus, the King James. I think you're right about the King James saying uh, it's the Son of God. Nebuchadnezzar says it looks like the Son of God. Um, but I, I think you're also correct that the, the uh, more modern translations usually get it more accurately. A Son of the Gods or something to that effect, yeah. Because Nebuchadnezzar, as a Babylonian king, wouldn't have any sense of the Son of God, you know, as a human being or something. I'd like to say one thing. Um, we know that when Christ healed anyone during the miracles that he did, they were totally healed. They didn't have to wait three days and then maybe they could walk. Right. Well, when uh, Christ, God, saves these three, he totally saves them. Even yes. their clothing does not smell. We all know. You don't know how it smells like a campfire. Used metal for a long time. So yes. Good, but you're to smell. That's right. That's right. You sure do. Yeah, even their clothes don't smell like like smoke or fire. Yeah. Yeah, they're saved completely. Yes. yes. Okay. Any other theories about who this is? What's your theory? Well, I want to hear everybody else's theory first. <laughs> well, Darlene, I I think um, I think I want to see what Mary Jo thinks. <laughs> Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Nebuchadnezzar sees someone in the fire. This is obviously a heavenly being, not an earthly being, because earthly beings couldn't survive in the fire like this fourth guy does. It couldn't appear in the fire either. Um, and so 
he attributes this to the gods, yeah, or a god or, or whatever. He he doesn't know who it is. He he just knows this is some kind of heavenly being. So that's why he says, looks like a son of the gods or a son of God. However, your translation takes that. Um, I don't think because Nebuchadnezzar says son of the gods or son of God, something like that, uh, that this is necessarily Jesus. It's too early for Jesus. He he comes another five hundred years, five hundred uh, almost six hundred years later. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has no sense that Jesus is coming several centuries into the future. Uh, I think he's. I think probably we're more accurate if we go with what Nebuchadnezzar says in verse twenty-eight: uh, that God has sent His angel and rescued His servants. Or angel, remember, just means messenger. God has sent His messenger and rescued His servants. So, if someone wants to say this is Jesus, I'm not going to be mad at him. But you know, I, I think uh, uh, I think it's safer to go with angel. Then God has sent his angel to uh, protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and nothing more is needed. An angel could do it. If it's Jesus, that's fine with me. But Jesus just hasn't really come on the scene yet. Yeah, Margie? Just a question. Yeah. Um, what form did Jesus have before he was born? That's a great question. What form did Jesus have before he was born as a human being? We don't know. Um, you know... We, we know from Philippians 2 that he was in very nature God. But what does that mean? Yeah, what does it mean to be in very nature God? Um, we know that he was with God when all things were created and all things were created through him. So he had form even before the world was created. Uh, if we knew what it meant to be God, I think we could identify what, it, what Jesus was before, before he was born as a human being. So. We don't know. And, and there, you know, there are some people who uh, think that there are multiple appearances of Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, that he is the angel of the Lord. Something like that. I, I don't think that's right, but, um, but I, I see where they're coming from. Um, Jesus was certainly active, uh, not passive during this time. You know, he, was very, um, you know, he was right there with God, uh, watching over Israel and such. Um, and waiting for, for the time when he would be born as a human being. Okay, so I just wanted to bring up this story and just throw that question out there. Who is this guy uh, who rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? I think Angel is, is uh, probably sufficient, and, uh, and, and uh, I, would, I would go with at least that. Uh, so think about this. Uh, why did God send an angel? He didn't need to. God could have just protected those three men, right? What's the point in sending an angel? Oh, get the king's attention. It does have an impact on Nebuchadnezzar, doesn't it? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar saw something he'd never seen before. And he who just said, even your God won't be able to save you from the fire, now sees <laughs> visible evidence that God is saving these men from the fire. Yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, in chapter 2, Daniel interprets the king's dream. And, um, and so in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar has already been introduced to the God of the Jews. Yeah. So he sees the power of this God in a new way. What uh, about this what Nebuchadnezzar thought in verse 25 when he says, the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the God, small uh, g. Uh -huh. So was he thinking that what was he thinking? That was like an idol or something? That... Something supernatural. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I think like Sherry said, uh, supernatural something, a supernatural being. Yeah, uh, son of the gods was an idiom that could uh, could just mean, um, yeah, supernatural being, because they didn't have a real clear understanding of um, what what is divine, what is angelic. You know, we differentiate those two. That was more blurry for them, I think. Um, just as it would be if, if someone just appeared to us out of nowhere. We'd be trying to figure out, okay, is this, is this you know, just really incredible new technology we hadn't heard about? Or is this an angel? Or is this Jesus? Or, you know, we'd take some reflection to figure that out. Don't we put out, remember, at the very beginning of Genesis, it says, we formed the earth and the heavens. Mm-hmm. And the voice said that was Jesus and God. Sure. Mm-hmm. So he always was here, maybe not in the form that we recognize. That's right. But yes, he was always in the Old Testament. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. God is uh, God is community. Yes. He is one, but he is also multiple. Okay. And uh, uh, so he calls us as his people to also be, you know, individuals, but also be one, one body in Christ, right? Um, so God Himself models that for us. And yeah, and, and so that means. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are there together in creation. We see God, who says, let there be light, and so on. We see in, I think it's Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of the earth before anything is, uh, is, is, is prepared for life. Um, Jesus, we don't see there in that scene, but we're told in the New Testament that he was there at the creation, that through him, through him all things were made. Okay, all right. Just wanted you to think about this uh, fourth guy here. Um, another thing to think about with this angel or whatever he is, uh, he, uh, God sometimes uses angels to just encourage his people. Just let them know he's there. Uh, these three men are thrown into the fire. They're probably thinking, wait, we didn't get burned up. God is saving us. And then this fourth guy appears with them. And they can see him. They might even be able to talk to him. I don't know. But they can at least see him like Nebuchadnezzar can. And uh, they know that God is present. That, that God is present through his angel uh, whom he has sent to rescue them. We'll see something similar when Daniel says that God sent a, an angel to close the mouths of the lions. And, uh, and, and Daniel was rescued uh, by, by the angel of God there, by the work of God. Yeah, I wonder the same thing. When the three of them are in this furnace, what are they doing? Just standing there, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. you know, are they all bent over, or what? Yeah. And, you know, you kind of wonder, like, what are they doing? Yeah, yeah. Playing cards or having a conversation. Yeah. I, I mean, it makes you wonder. But that makes sense when you said that that might be a security form, and he, that angel might be saying something to them. Mm-hmm. Might be. We're gonna get out of this. Yeah. Maybe he's commending them for their confidence in God. Maybe he's encouraging them to be faithful, something like that. Yeah. I doubt that Shadrach said to Meshach, hey, what are you doing tonight at 7? Maybe they were worshiping. You know, maybe they were jumping for joy. We're still alive. God is good. I bet they did. Yeah, I'm sure they did. And I love the last verse, uh, verse 30. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. They, they were being killed. They were being executed for defying the king. 
that the king made a switch after he saw that fourth being in the fire and saw how God protected these three men. He wanted these three men on his side. And so he actually gave them promotions. And that what he did for them then honored God. And he uh, tried to take back, you know, the insult that he had done against God. So. Okay, Georgia, Karen, do you, you guys want to say anything before we close up? No. No? Okay. All right, glad you've been with us. All right, thanks. Any last thoughts? Okay, let's start with section seven next time. And we're going to be in, begin with a psalm, just very briefly. And then we'll get into uh, a passage in Ezekiel 28. Uh, that um, is just like that passage we looked at from Isaiah 14 a couple of weeks ago about Lucifer. Well, it's been about a month ago now almost. Uh, about Lucifer and, and people getting mixed up about is this the king of Babylon? Is it the devil? We're going to see a, another passage that's just like that. There are two, and this will be the second one out of Ezekiel 28. Uh, does it describe the king of Tyre? Does it describe the devil? Which one is it? So we'll take a look at that uh, next time. All right, let's, let's pray and we'll, we'll close up. Our Father, thank you for the things that go on behind the scenes, the things that are beyond our sight that you do to protect us and to help us and to guide us each day. Thank you for uh, whatever it is that you are doing uh, through angels for your church and for us as individuals, uh, your children today. Thank you for the protection that you provide. Thank you for the guidance that you give. Thank you for the ways that you bring judgment on those who do evil uh, and you do so with discretion and wisdom. Uh, we, we, have, we take courage in you because of that, Lord, because we know that you will bring about what is right in the end and you, you even do so uh, now from time to time. Lord, we uh, trust you and as we think about these things that are supernatural, that are wonder, wonderful, uh, to us and amazing and mysterious. Lord, it just heightens our understanding of how great you are and our sense of your grandeur and your power and your wisdom. And so we honor you today. Help us to live as we should, Lord, that uh, we might be worthy of having our names written in the book of life. Not that we're worthy in anything we've done, but that uh, we might honor you for your gift of your son and his blood that washes us clean. Thank you for Jesus. Uh, thank you for your love. Bless us this week and all that you've given us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.